let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here today to spend time in your word. Thank you that we still have the freedom in this country to meet openly. Thank you that we have easy access to your word and that we have been afforded the education to be able to read it. Thank you for providing for us so well that we don't need to be working during this time so that we can be here with you. Thank you for this community of women where iron sharpens iron as we encourage one another in our faith. Thank you for making yourself known through creation and your word because it is our greatest joy in life to know you. And thank you for the priceless gift of your Holy Spirit to help us understand your word and our need. Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Whom do you resemble? Maybe you have your mom's eyes or your dad's laugh. Genetics is a remarkable thing. Maybe you, like me, have done a DNA test to learn about where your family came from. But sometimes you don't need a DNA test to know. When I was a missionary in Uzbekistan, the vast majority of the people had dark hair and brown eyes, but occasionally a child would be born with blue eyes and blonde hair. And when this happened, it was living testimony of Alexander the Great's conquest of their land almost 1,700 years ago. In addition to our DNA, we are shaped by our environment. The whole nature versus nurture debate is a fascinating one, and I especially love seeing how adopted children come to resemble their new family in so many ways. They embrace family values, learn how to speak a certain way, and even pick up on mannerisms. This is what our passage today is all about. We have both the DNA and the example of our Holy Heavenly Father, and thus we ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. We will look at our text in two divisions, children of God and children of the word. In our first division, Peter reminds us that we have a heavenly father who is holy, and therefore we should resemble him in holiness. Please open your Bibles and join me in reading our first division, 1 Peter 1, 13-21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter begins with a call to be ready for action. The verb used literally means tucking your tunic into your belt so that you can more easily run or move about. What do you do in order to be ready to get to work? Maybe roll your sleeves up? I always pull my hair back so that it won't get in my eyes. Whatever image is most compelling for you, the implication is that we need to be ready. Specifically, our minds need to be ready. Further, we need our minds to be sober. 
This isn't just a call to avoid drunkenness, although I think that is included. Nor is it that we need to be sober and that we can't crack a smile. No, Peter is making sure that we are fully aware of what is going on and ready to make clear judgments about what we need to do. It takes mental diligence to live as God has called us to in the midst of the trials of this life. Particularly, Peter tells these suffering Christians to set their hope fully on Christ's return. For when Christ comes again, he will come as judge of the whole earth. His glory will no longer be hidden, but rather on full display. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And he will be our triumphant hero. We will stand victorious with him. No matter what challenges we face, what godless laws are passed, how loud our enemies taunt us, we have confidence that in the end Jesus will reign over all. This way of life is contrasted with their old way of life, which in verse 14 is described as being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Living clear-headed is a completely different way of going about life than following your emotions like a hound to a scent. It's not just different, but it is inherently, achingly better. The old way was ignorant, but now our Father has shown a superior way. Thus, we ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. Also in verse 14, Peter calls believers obedient children. This phrase is both a call to holiness and an affirmation of our relationship with God as dearly loved daughters. You may have noticed a title at the top of this passage in your Bible, something along the lines of a call to holiness. It's true, this passage is a call to holiness. Peter explicitly tells us to be holy in both verses 15 and 16. But as we will see, it is not a list of all the do's and don'ts, so much as it is about all that God has done for us, and the natural outflow of our hearts in response. It's about relationship far more than it is about law. Indeed, we were once under the law. We were once called to holiness as a means to heaven, but we failed. Jesus paid our price, and now Peter calls us to holiness, not as a good work to earn our way to heaven, but rather out of love for our beloved, perfect, awe-inspiring Father. The command to be holy in verses 15 and 16 are founded on the fact that our Heavenly Father is as well. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is being set apart, different, and intrinsically morally above the ordinary. This points to God's perfection. This highlights his complete lack of sin or any failing or inadequacy. And it is this way of holiness that God has shown us. He has set an example for us to follow, like a child slipping their feet into their father's shoes. It is God's desire throughout history for his children to follow his example in living this way. For this phrase is used multiple times in the Old Testament, and Peter uses it again here, even though it is on the other side of the cross. God's desire for you and for me is that we resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. As children of God, we have the incredible privilege to call on God as our Father. But in verse 17, we are reminded that if we call on God as our Father, we cannot forget what kind of Father He is. 
He is the impartial judge of the universe. As Christians, we don't need to dread condemnation on the last day. But the Bible does tell us that there will be a judgment of our good deeds with rewards given to those who are faithful. Moreover, we are to have a heavenly, a healthy fear of our Father. God loves us dearly, and He is good, but He is also holy, mighty, all-knowing, and the God of gods. Just as He is imminent El Shaddai, God with us, He is also the transcendent God whose ways are not our ways. It isn't that we fear angry retribution from our Heavenly Father but that because we love him so dearly and place such a high value on his good favor that we fear displeasing him. Therefore, because he is rightly to be feared, we ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. Another aspect of a family is culture. Every family has a culture. My family values books. We spend Saturdays hiking and love the marvels of God's creation. Likewise, God's family has a culture. As we've seen thus far in the passage, they are a clear-minded people, not driven by their passions. They are morally set apart. At the close of verse 17, Peter describes his audience as exiles. As aliens in a foreign land, this culture, this identity, was something Peter's audience of displaced Christians needed. They did not fit in. Yet they need not feel that anything is lacking in their lives despite being exiles, because they have family, identity, and a way of life in God. You see, holiness is not just a calling out, but also a calling in. Think back to Rahab. When Rahab chose to help the spies, she lost her people, her culture, and even her means of making ends meet. Can you imagine how dramatically different Rahab's life must have been after Jericho was captured and Rahab became a part of the people of God? And we, like Rahab, ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness as we live in the culture of his family. Further, we should remember the privilege of being a child of God came at the price of Christ's very blood. As verses 18 and 19 put it, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Salvation is couched in various terms throughout the Bible to help us grasp the fullness of what it means for us. Here it is described as a ransom that is paid. The original audience of this letter would have been very familiar with the concept as money could be paid by the slave, a family member, or a friend to free the slave. Interestingly, though, the money was given to the pagan priests first, who would in turn buy the slave's freedom. From then on, the slave would be free, but owe a debt of gratitude and fealty to the local god. What would this image mean to Christians? We also owe a debt of gratitude and faithfulness to our god. He has bought us and we are his. But it is even greater than that of the pagan world to their gods, because Jesus even paid the price. Because God has paid such a price to free us, we ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. Note what we were ransomed from. 
In verse 18, our salvation is described as a ransoming from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Our modern world doesn't place the same value on tradition, but the ancient world, saying that the ways inherited from your forefathers was feudal, would have been shocking. This was the cumulative wisdom of generations, and yet it was merely worldly wisdom. Peter calls this wisdom futile. This word futile really became vivid to me recently. One of my children is studying ancient Egypt for school, and as we were learning about their history, there was one period where they were so keen to embalm animals to bring to their temples as gifts for their gods that they bred animals just to kill them. Then, from sunup to sundown, for years on end, there were long lines of people carting these mummified animals into the temple. Think of the great expense. Think of the time dedicated to the mummification process. And all for naught. It was completely worthless. And although not every pagan culture's futility was as blatant, ultimately they all were a meaningless waste of time if they were not serving the one true God. Even for the Christians of Jewish heritage, their former ways were now shown to be worth nothing, as Paul describes his former life in Judaism. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. God's work of redemption frees us from our past to now live in holiness. In other words, the patterns of sin that pass through generations are broken by the work of Christ. As Christians, we are not doomed to repeat the sins of our fathers. In a show I was watching recently, a winsome older man was asked why he had never married. He responded with a story about how, as a boy, everyone told him he was just like his father. They were spitting images of each other, and had all the same talents. But they also had all the same shortcomings. And as the boy saw how his father demeaned his mother, he came to the conviction that he should never marry for fear of resembling his father in that sin, too. How tragic. Thanks be to God, we need not live by that kind of fear. Since he has ransomed us from this futility, surely we ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. It was so important that we be freed from this old, futile way of living, that Christ paid our ransom with his very blood. This payment of blood is contrasted in verse 18 with silver and gold. Don't miss the understated imagery of Peter's description of silver and gold being perishable things. Silver and gold are prized for the very reason that they are virtually imperishable. Their vibrance is long-lasting, and they don't rust away. Isaiah 52.3, You were sold for nothing, and not with money you shall be redeemed, was probably on Peter's mind as he wrote this. Gold and silver could never be enough. We could only ever be saved by blood, the precious blood of Christ. Christ's blood alone is sufficient to pay the price needed to ransom you. Again, awed by the price paid on your, our behalf, we ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. Peter's not done emphasizing the preciousness of Christ's blood, and so verse 19 also describes Christ's substitutionary sacrifice in the phrase, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Throughout the Old Testament, 
God required lambs without any defect to be sacrificed. Whether it be for the Passover or one of the other sacrifices throughout the year, the blood of the spotless lamb was meant to appease God's righteous judgment by covering over the sin of his people. Every lamb sacrificed was pointing God's people to Christ, since it was really only his blood that could pay the price. This is why John the Baptist boldly declared Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The emphasis upon the Lamb being spotless was to highlight Christ's holiness. Christ's precious, perfect blood was the only way we could ever be reconciled to a holy God. Then Peter transitions to tell that this Lamb without blemish or spot was as, verse 20 says, foreknown before the foundation of the world. In a transitory planet, where the plans of these believers surely had been upended as they scattered far from their homeland, knowing that God's plan, which he had established before time began, had been carried out for them to see, must have been a comfort, and should be to us as well. In our trials, God is still completely in control, and everything is going as planned. Just as it did with that best of all plans, But don't miss that God's glorious plan of redemption included suffering. Yet verse 21 affirms that after suffering, Christ was raised and glorified. There is life on the other side of our struggles too, brilliant, victorious life. We are even told in verse 20 that we are in the last times, that glorious future is near. God our Father is the impetus of the whole spectacular plan of salvation, And so now we can trust him in whatever trials we face. As verse 21 rightly concludes, He has done all this so that your faith and hope are in God. As we trust him, we will obey. And in this way, we will resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. Our first truth is, as Christians, we are called to live in holiness because we are children of a holy God. How does your father's example show you the holy way to approach the difficult situations in your life? How does your life reveal that you fear him or don't fear him? What things that God has done and will do do you need to keep in your mind's eye in order to cultivate a biblical fear of God? As I worked on this lesson, meditating on Isaiah 40 really helped my heart have a holy fear of God. Keep your eyes out for a link at the bottom of the outline to a powerful musical rendition of Isaiah 40. Now we will turn to our second division. In verses 22 through 25, Peter shows us that we are also children of the word, and this too has implications for how we are to live in holiness. Here's our text. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. From a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In many parts of the Bible, we are told that we have been adopted into God's family. But these verses tell us 
that when we trusted the gospel, we were born again of the seed of the word. Our very DNA has been changed. This is now both nature and nurture that shapes us, shapes us to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. The plea for holiness now turns in verse 22 to how we act with our siblings. Love with brotherly love because you have been purified. You see, when we put our trust in Jesus, we were changed, purified. We initially obeyed the call to repent of our sins and trust God, and now we continue in obedience to love one another. Two different words for love are used here in the original Greek. They build in intensity. We can't get away with half-hearted love. This love is also supposed to be the overflow of a pure heart. Holiness certainly, holiness is certainly an internal reality, but it will manifest itself in the outward expression of love, particularly towards other believers. On a practical level, how important is it that during times of displacement and persecution by the world around them, Christians would love each other deeply as family? God knows our needs and provides. His sufficiency includes this provision of love from our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verses 23 to 25, Peter will be pointing out our eternal nature as a foundation for this love. Take a look at the women around you. Inasmuch as the visible church is the same as the true church, these are your eternal sisters. These are the relationships that will last. Therefore, we have good reason to work hard to love each other well. What does love towards each other look like? Helping each other in times of need, certainly. Isn't it also being careful to forgive? Not gossiping? Praying for each other? Encouraging each other? Fair and honest business dealings? The list could go on. But do you notice that these expressions of love could also be called holy living? This is what it means to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness. Next, in verses 24 to 25, Peter again quotes from Isaiah, this time chapter 40. The verses he includes specifically point to the transient nature of this world, and what a comfort that is during times of persecution. Our enemies who seem to have so much power are, in reality, those whose glory fades as quickly as that of grass and flowers of the field. In contrast, God's word is eternal. This is indeed a powerful word. It is the word that created the universe, and it is the word which likewise recreated us. It has the power of life, eternal life. Believers need to have an eternal perspective in order to weather all that our adversaries, the world, the devil, and our flesh, can throw at us. In alluding to this passage, though, Peter's original audience would have had in mind the greater context of those verses. Peter was taking a passage of comfort from a, for a previous generation of God's people in exile and reminding the saints of his day that they had the same God caring for them. Let me share some of the rest of the chapter with you. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, 
Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Behold, his reward is with him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It is he who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Why do you say, O Jacob, my way is hidden from the Lord? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He gives power to the faint. Did you catch all the commonalities between Isaiah 40 and our passage? Both bring up good news, Christ coming and revealed glory, future judgment and reward, God's power compared to the fleeting nature of the nations, his holiness and his eternal nature. But what Peter left unsaid, but implied, is God's tender love. He affirms that he sees and he cares. These are the promises that sustain a persecuted, displaced people. And these promises are for us, too. Do you remember when you heard the gospel and accepted it? Even if you were too young to remember, the reality of that event changed you ad infinitum. God's plan of salvation from eternity past has indelibly rewritten who we are for, inter for eternity future. And now, today, it should shape the way we live. Sometimes it feels like the society that surrounds us is an overwhelming current, and it is hard to live differently, live set apart. But doesn't knowing the immensity of God's eternal plan help ground us? His holy word, which does not change, is our DNA. What is politically correct can change season to season, but God's holy standard, which we bear, does not. And that, ladies, is our call to holiness. Are you convicted yet that we ought to resemble our Heavenly Father in holiness? This, then, is our second truth. As Christians, God's word defines us and sets us apart to live in holiness with one another. To what extent is the word of God your culture? How does it shape your day, your values, your way of speaking, your tastes? How can you make it more so? How well do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? In light of their eternal relationship with you, how can you make them a priority and love them more sincerely? This last year, a large group of Afghans moved into my neighborhood. As I see them at the park and the supermarket, time and time again I've realized the ways, big and small, that our cultures are different. They dress differently, they eat differently, they have different social norms, they have different family dynamics. As Christians, we should likewise be different, different enough that people will notice. We dress ourselves in the joy of the Lord. We eat or are sustained by the word of God. Grace is our social norm. We love not only our earthly families, but also our spiritual brothers and sisters earnestly. 
In conclusion, Christians don't need to pay for Ancestry.com to know their lineage. Just like the sapphire eyes of Alexander the Great's descendants, our lives should make it clear whose child we are. The way we love one another should leave no doubt which family we belong to. As Christians, God's word defines us and sets us apart to live in holiness with one another. Please pray with me. Dearest Heavenly Father, we praise you for your beautiful plan of redemption from eternity past. We confess that we do not love each other sincerely and from pure hearts, but we thank you for Christ's work of redemption. His precious blood alone is sufficient to pay the price to free us from bondage to our past. And we thank you for giving us a new way to live. Help us to be holy as you are holy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.